Go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 this morning. We're continuing our series on the arrival of the king at Advent. And we've been walking through Luke's account as he tells the story of Jesus's arrival on earth. And we're focusing on the idea that Jesus is the king. And so there are a number of things in the story, as Luke tells us, that are kind of directly related to the idea that Jesus is king and some that are not as directly related, but we're drawing those things out as we walk through the story this Advent season and just kind of noting these things and understanding how they pick up some themes or prophecies from the Old Testament, what they tell us about what Jesus came to do, what he came to accomplish as the king. And so this morning, there are five things in these verses that we're going to note in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Let's begin by reading these verses, and I'll just read it out loud for us. You can follow along in your Bible. Luke 2, starting in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. <clears throat> and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. We're going to note five things in that passage this morning. And the first one is this. Jesus dispels the fear and darkness. Jesus dispels the fear and darkness. The shepherds were in the darkness. And then the angels appeared. And there's bright light. There's glory shining. This is signifying to us what happens in the birth of Jesus. That the darkness is dispelled. 
the shepherds, like others, couldn't expect to see God's glory and live. We see in the Old Testament that if somebody sees God, they don't live. But here we have God's glory mediated through the angels, so to speak. So the angels are appearing and the glory of God is shining, but not in its fullness. And that in and of itself also kind of points us to something about Jesus. We can't see the glory of God. We can't be in God's presence without a mediator. We have a mediator who brings us into God's presence, and that is Jesus. But there's also the idea that the fear is dispelled. The shepherds are afraid when all of this is happening. But the beginning of the message to the shepherds is, don't be afraid. This is good news. This will bring great joy. So last week we saw Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 2, this prophecy, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And here, even in the appearance of the angels, we have kind of a, a, a symbolic picture of that. And because of Jesus, we no longer need to fear Instead, we're invited into God's presence. John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus is the light. He brings us to God. He shows us the path to God. Not only that, not only is Jesus the light, but as Jesus speaks to his followers, he tells them in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Just like the shepherds in this passage were given the task of going and spreading the good news, announcing it, we too have that same assignment. We are the light. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. So he's the light. When his light shines on us, we are to reflect that light. So we are the light of the world, reflecting Jesus, being his image in the world. Note the connection between peace and light. Do not fear. When the light shines, you can see the truth. We tend to be afraid of the dark. Maybe some of you kids struggle with that. Maybe you're afraid of the dark. And sin, the Bible compares to darkness. Sin is darkness. But Jesus brings light. And so we sing things like, Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings risen with healing in his wings. Or in the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which we will sing this morning, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. The fears are answered when the light shines. The second thing this morning is that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's born with the animals. He's announced to the shepherds. Turn in your Bible to Micah chapter 5. Just mark your place in Luke 2 and turn back with me to Micah 5. Micah is one of the minor prophets, not minor because he's unimportant, but minor just meaning they're smaller. They're not big long books like Isaiah and Jeremiah. So these 12 minor prophets come at the very end of the Old Testament and Micah is right in the middle of those. Micah chapter 5. <clears throat> As we're thinking about the idea that Jesus was born with the animals, he was announced to the shepherds, this is a helpful passage for us to see. We sometimes read this and we just kind of single out the, the prophecy about the city. 
of Bethlehem. But there's a little bit more than that here too. Let me read for you, Micah 5, starting in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And catch this. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. The shepherds are associated with the city of Bethlehem, and that's for a reason. Uh, Bethlehem is the city of David, and David was the shepherd king, but it goes beyond that. It's the shepherds of Bethlehem who supplied the sacrifices for the temple. So the religious leaders, the temple leaders, have deals worked out with the shepherds in Bethlehem. And so they're the ones who provide the lambs. And then when people are traveling and they need to buy a lamb, or if they discover that the lamb that they brought is somehow blemished, it's the lambs from Bethlehem that are provided because they're screened and they are inspected and only the, the ones that are unblemished are brought to the temple. But they come from the city of Bethlehem. <clears throat> so when the promised shepherd comes, Micah tells us, he brings peace and security. That's what a shepherd does for his sheep. I want you to turn with me to one more passage. So go back into the New Testament and join me in John chapter 10. John chapter 10. In this passage, and we're not going to read all 18 verses, but this is the section where Jesus is talking about being the good shepherd. But he actually says something else interesting. Before he identifies himself as the shepherd, he identifies with something else that's related. So John chapter 10. And let's take a look at verses 7 through 9. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. <clears throat> a sheep pen in Israel was typically kind of a, a like maybe an oval shape or a, a rounded rectangle kind of shape with an opening at one end. And it doesn't actually have a door. It doesn't have a gate. Uh, these were placed throughout the, the region and the shepherds as they wandered with their flocks would come to one and they would use that one for a time. And, you know, they'd get all the sheep to go inside this area and then they would sit down at the opening, maybe have their campfire for the night or whatever. And then when they went to sleep, they would sleep across the opening. And so they are literally the door, the pen to the sheep pen. So the sheep can't get out without waking up the shepherds. And nothing can get in without getting past the shepherds. And that's why the sheep have peace and security. And Jesus says he's the door to the sheep. But that's not all he says. Jump down to verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
So the shepherd's willing to lay down his life to protect the sheep. We see that in the story of David because David goes after the wild animals and kills them in order to protect the sheep that he is watching over. Jump down then to verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So we are like sheep. We are in need of care and protection and provision and security. And Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for us. But this is a many layered image here. The other reason that the shepherds are the ones who receive this announcement is that Jesus is not just the door to the sheep pen. He's not just the good shepherd, but John the Baptist announces Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this lamb from Bethlehem will be the spotless lamb who goes to be sacrificed on behalf of his people. And so it's appropriate that the shepherds are the ones who receive this announcement. And so we sing, shepherds listen as the angels tell of the gift of God come down to man at the dawning of Emmanuel. We just sang those words. And then when we sing the song, joy has dawned, we sing, shepherds bow before the lamb, gazing at the glory. The announcement coming to the shepherds is a very appropriate uh, destination for that announcement to come. The third thing we see in Luke chapter 2 this morning is that Jesus is David's son, the perfect ruler. If you listen to those words from Luke chapter 2 as we read the story over and over we see that this is Bethlehem, it's the city of David. Jesus is the one who's descended from David. I want you to come with me. Actually, I think I put this one on screen for you. Yes, you don't have to turn. Hold your place where you are. 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is a covenant that God makes with David regarding his kingdom. And this is in the context of David saying that he wants to build a house for God. He wants to build a temple. David says, I've got this great house that I get to live in. It's not right that I get a great house and we haven't built a great house for God. But God says, no, it's not going to be you, David, who builds this. It's going to be your son, Solomon. And he makes a covenant with David. And as you read the covenant, there are certain things in that covenant that must apply to Solomon and couldn't apply to Jesus. But there are also things that must apply to Jesus and couldn't apply to Solomon. It's a mix of things that are in there. But here's just a couple of verses from this covenant. God says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There's going to be a descendant who would rule and God would establish his kingdom. And this descendant would build a house for God and God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now we know that Solomon does build a house for God. Solomon's the one who builds the first temple. But that was also pointing us forward to Jesus. Jesus is in, in his father Joseph is in the Davidic line here. Jesus is born in the city of David. Jesus is David's promised descendant. And it's God who establishes 
Jesus' kingdom, just as he promised. Think about the announcements that are given, for instance, by John the Baptist and then also by Jesus as he begins his ministry. What does John say? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is in your midst. The good news of the kingdom is what's being announced. Over and over, these are the words that are used to describe what God is doing in Jesus this ultimate descendant of David. And the kingdom is established by the power of the Spirit. We've seen that in previous weeks as well. Jesus is the eternal king who rules with perfect leadership. But it's Jesus who ultimately builds the house for God. Solomon builds the first temple, that physical, glorious temple. But when Jesus comes along, what does Jesus say is the temple? Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. He's talking, we're told, about his body. Jesus himself is the temple. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he raises it up. And then in the ascension, he comes to the throne and he pours out the Holy Spirit on his people. And how are the people of God identified? How is the church identified? Over and over the New Testament tells us that we are the temple of God. So think about it. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul asks the church in Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? The temple is a dwelling place, a house for God. And you are that temple, Paul says. Ephesians 2, 22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's actually the exact language. You're being built, just like the promise to David. We'll build a house for my name. 1 Peter 2, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So we are the temple that is being built. We are the house for God's name that God promised to David in this covenant. And God establishes Jesus' throne forever. It will never end. His reign has already begun. He's now seated on the throne and his reign will grow and continue forever. And the unique thing about this house for God, the church, us, is that God's intention is that he and his people would live there together. This is not like a typical earthly king. So we sang this morning already, O come thou key of David, come and open wide our heavenly home. Our heavenly home is our dwelling place with God forever. We are the temple. We are the place where God dwells. He dwells in the midst of his people. And all of that is coming true in the advent of Jesus. The fourth thing, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Now you may not have seen this one as we read the passage, Luke chapter two, but several times in that passage, it is pointed out to us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem the city of David. The shepherds say, let's go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened. The word Bethlehem means house of bread. Okay, the word Bethlehem means house of bread. 
And this is picking up a theme from the Old Testament that kind of runs all through the Old Testament. I want to show you mainly just one place where it is. So turn with me this morning to the book of Ruth. Turn to the book of Ruth. We're just going to kind of drop in on a few different verses in the book of Ruth to see how this theme runs through this story. If you know the story of the book of Ruth, it begins with Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and they're uh, they are Israelites. They leave the land because of a famine. They go to Moab. They have two sons, and their sons both find wives in Moab. But while they're there, all three of the men, Elimelech and the two uh, sons-in-law, all die. And Naomi hears that things are getting better back in her homeland, and she decides to go back. And Ruth, her one daughter-in-law, goes back with her. And the story then follows Ruth and how Ruth um, ends up marrying Boaz. And Bo it's the story of a kinsman redeemer, another important theme. And then ultimately we see that Jesus is descended from the line that comes from Boaz and Ruth. That's the really brief overview. But let's drop in on a few things and kind of notice how this theme of Bethlehem, the house of bread, and the idea that Jesus is the bread of life is kind of set up for us in a story like the story of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So you get the irony there. There's a famine in the land, so the man from the house of bread leaves. Okay? Uh, verse 6, now the, the three men have died, and we're picking up the story after that. Verse 6, so Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Okay, so she hears that God has provided bread for his people. He's provided food for his people. And so she's going to return. But Naomi is returning um, without her husband and without her sons. So jump down to verse 21 and see what she says to describe this. Verse 21, she says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So again, we still have this kind of theme of provision. She's talking about her husband and sons, but we have the underlying current of famine. And so food is present in the picture here as well. So verse 22 then, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to the house of bread, Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So they arrive at harvest time. Okay. And so then as the story unfolds, we see Ruth gleaning in Boaz's field. And if you remember from our study in the law, even recently, the Old Testament law, as farmers kind of harvested their fields, they left the corners unharvested so that the poor could come and harvest for themselves. 
they still had to do the work, but there was food provided for them. This was one of God's means of making sure that everyone was cared for. And so Ruth goes out to do this, and the fields that she's doing this in belong to Boaz. And eventually Boaz and Ruth meet, and Boaz, you know, kind of falls in love with Ruth. We'll pick up the story in chapter 2, verse 14, as they have come together here for a meal. So it says, And at mealtime Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread, and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. So here we have Ruth, who is not an Israelite. She's from Moab. And she comes to the land of Israel, where God has provided food for his people. She comes to the house of bread, Bethlehem, meets Boaz. He gives her bread, and he gives her so much that she's satisfied, and she has some left over. And that thread continues through the whole book. Let's jump over to the last chapter, chapter 4. Because this is where Boaz and Ruth finally get married. And so they're in front of the elders of the city at the city gates. And there's other people there too. And I want you to hear what the people say regarding Naomi, who is, she belongs to them. She's from there. Okay. In light of Boaz and Ruth. Okay. So look at verse 11, chapter 4. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house. So that's, may the Lord make Ruth who is coming into your house, Naomi. Like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So may you be blessed. May you be full. May you have fullness and and satisfaction because of the offspring that's going to come from Boaz and Ruth. And then the chapter finishes with Boaz and Ruth having a son. And we're told, take a look at uh, verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so then it finishes and it says, Now these are the generations of Perez. Now Perez is a son of Judah. So kingly line here. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So when we find out that Jesus is to be born in the house of bread, which is the city of David, it's telling us about this fulfillment that comes from what's happening right here in the book of Ruth, this birth that comes from Obed, Uh, excuse me, from Boaz and Ruth through Obed, through Jesse, down to David. And it's telling us that this birth in the city that's named for the house of bread is God's provision for his people. This is God providing what his people need. The famine is over, so to speak. 
God's providing. So Bethlehem, house of bread, is the city of David, and the fullness of this house or family is found in the descendants from David on down to Jesus. Now, think about the symbol of bread in the tabernacle. There's bread in the tabernacle. When you, were, when you walked into the holy place, you, you had on one side a table with bread, 12 loaves. Why 12? One for each tribe, because the bread symbolized the people. And opposite that, you had a table, or you had the, the lampstand. And the light from the lampstand is shining on the bread. And the idea there is, it's a representation of God's people in God's presence. It's the light of God causing his people to flourish. The bread represents God's people. Now, take those ideas, and with all of that background, turn back to the book of John with me, John chapter 6. Okay, John chapter 6. John chapter 6. So in this section of John's story, the crowds are asking Jesus what sign he would do that they should believe what he's saying. Now, when they say that, it's the day after they just witnessed him feeding the 5,000. Bread and fish multiplied, a handful of bread and fish multiplied for thousands of people. And they're asking, what sign are you going to do to show us that we should believe? Okay, well, that was a pretty good sign. And they point out, though, that when God was working through Moses, God sent bread from heaven. I mean, what you did is impressive and all, Jesus. But when Moses was here, God sent bread from heaven. And they say, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So what will you do, Jesus? Pick up the story with me in John 6, verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So Jesus is identifying himself as the bread. Just kind of skipping down through the story. Jump down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Skip down to verse 48. Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus's arrival in Bethlehem is not just simply a fulfillment of an abstract prophecy about what city he would arrive in, Bethlehem. 
it also tells us something in that it is the house of bread where God would provide the bread from heaven that would be for the whole world. And it's the city of David, the great king, whose descendant would be, as prophesied in Ruth, the fulfillment, the filling of the house of David. And all of that is wrapped up in what we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, O little town of house of bread, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep the silent stars go by. <clears throat> Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. All of these promises, these different threads of what God was telling us through the Old Testament about who this king would be and what he would accomplish, they all kind of come together in the arrival of this king in Bethlehem, in the house of bread. Well, the fifth and final thing for us to note from Luke 2 this morning is that Jesus is God with us, the second Adam. It was necessary that Jesus become a man in order to save us because as sinful people, we can't come into the presence of a holy God. We have a need for a man who would represent us, but there is no man who's sinless until Jesus comes. And this is the heart of Christmas. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam was our representative, but he fell into sin. And so we all, following Adam, are ourselves sinners. But Jesus comes as the second Adam, our new representative. That's why if you're sitting there looking at Luke chapter 2 and you turn the page and look over at Luke chapter 4, you see at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his temptation. Adam was tempted and he fell. Jesus was tempted and he remained holy. That's why he's our sinless representative. That's why he's the second Adam. That's why the new creation begins with him. His substitutionary atonement and his righteousness that he gives to us is made possible by him taking on human flesh but remaining sinless. And so he's the second Adam, the greater representative that we have. And that's the purpose of Jesus' incarnation that we're singing about when we sing, nails, spear shall pierce him through, the cross be born for me, for you. Hail, hail, the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. And it's the amazing event that we're celebrating and wondering at when we sing, come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. It was necessary for him to be able to save us. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that as we continue to walk through this story in the Gospel of Luke, that you would just continue to impress on our hearts and minds this amazing, wondrous story of God becoming man. 
what it means that he is the king. So many different promises and hopes and and hints from the Old Testament are all wrapped up into this event. And the way the gospel authors unfold this story is beautiful and it's packed full of meaning. We pray that as we continue at this Christmas season to look at this story, that you would help us to see what's there. Help us to see Jesus, our King. And that our response would be like the angels, like the shepherds, like the wise men to worship. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.